You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dr. Michael Krasny is a professor of English at San Francisco State University. He's the host and senior editor of the Northern California NPR affiliate KQED's forum. His new book is Off Mike. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Thank you. One thing, at the beginning of this book, you immediately tell us that you had long wanted to be a writer and that you had hoped to write a Bildungsroman in the manner of Saul Bellow's The Adventures of Augie March. Could you explain what a Bildungsroman is and why you wanted to write like Saul Bellow? Bildungsroman simply is a kind of episodic adventure that takes a young man through, usually a young man, although you have female Bildungsromans, but the actual derivation of it goes back to Germany and to novels like Wilhelm Meister, and I don't want to get too literary here on your scholarly, but there's a whole tradition of the novel of initiation, the novel of coming into awareness, which can take on an enormous number of experiences. Huckleberry Finn, for example, is a great American novel in that vein. And Augie March, The Adventures of Augie March, which was published in 1954 by Sal Bellow, which I didn't come across until at least a decade after that, was that kind of novel. And it was a novel that spoke to me about a freshness of voice, about a lyricism that I found very engaging and captivating, about taking experiences from life and melding them with imagination and having a large canvas that you could put a novel onto. In other words, what we used to jokingly call the great American novel. And indeed, I aspired to that. I thought that maybe I had that in me. It turned out that I didn't have it in me, but uh, it certainly wasn't for lack of trying. And part of the conceit of the book is wanting to be a writer and not being able to be a writer, being able to find a life as a scholar and a teacher and a life of the spoken word. But I think it's a a story that many people can identify with because that kind of dream of being any kind of an artist, you know, is something that people, particularly I think of the boomer generation and those who came after, aspire to. And many of them simply didn't realize it. Another part of their brain was working and percolating to a greater degree or there was something simply that uh, kept them from realizing or fulfilling that dream or they kept saying, I'll I'll do it one day. Or I kept trying to do it, but wasn't able to consummate. I, I might beg to differ with you in that, that I actually think that this book itself constitutes a building's Romano, only a true life version of it. One thing that, when you started writing, or, or when did you first have an interest in writing? First got interested in writing, I think probably as... Well, when I first when I first got a real taste of Shakespeare, uh, I th- I think um, that reading Shakespeare and studying Shakespeare kind of turned my insides around. I thought this is really something that I love, and this is something I feel passionate about. And it grew out from there to just literature in general. As I say in in the beginning of my book, I was mad for literature, and indeed I was for reading omnivorously, for absorbing as much as I could of literary texts that were worth absorbing, and also of trying to put my own stake in the ground and create my own literature. So it probably was around maybe junior year in college I took a creative writing course uh, from uh, a couple of teachers. I write about this in the book. One was Cecil Hemley who made me feel maybe that I wasn't going to embark on a career as a writer. And then I had another teacher who was much more encouraging, Walter Tevis, who probably more of your listeners will know by name because he wrote The Hustler, the 
famous novel and movie that starred Paul Newman and Jackie Gleason and The Man Who Fell to the Earth with David Bowie and also The Color of Money with Tom Cruise, which was the sequel to The Hustler. So having those teachers and having many classes in literature and sort of falling uh, in like and love with the whole idea and concept of being a writer began to be more than just an embryo in me, began to grow. One of the themes in this book is your Jewish heritage. I, I, we, we see this again and again. You talk about how, and, and it's shocked me to, to read that your father was rejected from medical school by a quota. It shocks people not only to read but to hear that there were quotas, but there indeed were at one time. And this was around the time my dad was embarking on a career where he thought he would become a doctor. There were quotas not only for medical school, but there were quotas, in fact, for other professional schools like dental school. And even when I went to college, and I was a generation away from my father, there, there were restrictions against Jews. This is in southern Ohio, but it was not all that uncommon in other places as well, in fraternities and sororities. It was simply a fact of life. It was something that we accepted. You know, Jews and blacks were simply not allowed. There were covenants uh, not allowed in, 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 we know, for example, certain real estate areas, but also not allowed in fraternities and sororities. And the whole notion of quotas, uh, as a college professor, when I talk about, you know, I have students, many of them Jewish students, who look at me in wonder and, and disbelief that those existed or that fraternities and sororities discriminated against and prohibited Jews. But like I said, it was a fact of life. And when you first encountered your very first interview, you encountered a, a, a bit of anti-Semitism from Gore Vidal. Yeah, I think it wouldn't be uh, inappropriate to describe. I think anti-Semitism is something that should be used advisedly as a characterization because it's all too often used loosely and indiscriminately. But, And I don't think, for example, that being critical of Israel is being anti-Semitic, as some do. You can be anti-Zionist and not be anti-Semitic, or anti-Israel and not be anti-Semitic. And you can also, of course, be both of those and be anti-Semitic. With Gore Vidal, though, it was, I think, appropriately anti-Semitic. He's also been indicted for being anti-Israel and, and excoriated for that. But the truth of the matter is that he took me off guard. I was doing this interview, and I was all prepared to like him. And I liked him as a reader, and I liked him as a guy who I saw in the talk shows who was very witty and engaging. And... I thought we'd have a lot in common. We were both literary guys. I was at the time, like Corvidal has always been, sort of on the left politically, and I thought we would certainly have mutual interests and rapport, possibly. And I write about this in the book. He sort of shocked me with what, what came out of almost nowhere. Is I was asking him about uh, a writer named Delmore Schwartz because I saw that he was reading the biography of this writer, and he came up with, uh, just out of the blue, he said, well, you know, um, the Jews think they're better than we Goyim. Goyim is a pejorative word for Gentiles, and then said something about uh, the Jews think they own New York, and they were gratuitous comments. They were kind of off-the-wall comments, and I realized I had to interview this guy, you know. Uh, I had to go ahead with um, being on camera. It was a TV interview for public television, and I tried to keep my cool, and it became kind of a credo to me at that time, not realizing it, but, but looking back, that you always try to be professional regardless of what you're up against. Try to take the high road. In, in this book, uh, it's a really frank and kind of raw memoir. The, the passages about yourself are almost, in in a way, stummi- stunningly uh, self-sacrificing. Uh, 
when you wrote this book, did you talk to somebody about this and say, did, did you have people read this and say, oh, my God, you can't say this <laughs> or you shouldn't say this? Well, nowadays, I don't know that there's anything that you can't say. You know, we live in an age where um, <laughs> uh, we've, we've come, say, a long way from when Norman Mailer wrote The Naked and the Dead and had to write the F word as F-U-G and things of that sort. But the kind of rawness you're talking about, I mean, there's, there's real human experiences here that came out of me in, in the writing process that I didn't necessarily know were going to. It's a, psychologists would call it primary process. You know, it's like you take the lid off it and stuff just comes pouring out. And with me, it was, you know, stories about, well, there's a scatological story in there. There's a, there's a vomiting story in there. But they're, they're human stories uh, is the way I look at it. And I think that they, I hope, enhance my humanity. It was difficult, and I struggled with it because some said it was too personal. Uh, people whom I trusted and, and uh, have an abiding faith in as far as their opinion and conviction. Some said, you know, you're going to ruin your public image and de-iconize yourself. In other words, the notion being that somehow I was going to show feet of clay and people who thought of me as an icon would no longer see me in that fashion. But I thought, well, I've put this stuff on the page and I'll put it out there. And I think that so far, at least, touch wood. I mean, Stendhal says when you write about yourself, you put a target on yourself. But so far, the response has been really quite favorable. And, and the worst things that have been said about this book is that I, <laughs> well, one reviewer said, it was mostly a laudatory review, but he said, I write too much about myself. And I thought, well, what do you do in a memoir, you know? <laughs> I mean, isn't that what a memoir is supposed to be? Uh, but I, I've been um, gratified by the kind of comments that I've heard from people. Well, you like the book, you know, and uh, I was gratified to hear how much you like the book. One thing that, that I found really interesting was, was your structure of alternating in memoir with uh, interviews. And I'd like you to talk about the selection process that you must have gone through to match interviews with memoir inter interludes. I didn't realize that I was doing this until I was sort of into the book. Um, but uh, it, it, it oscillates between life narrative and writers, generally writers, well, writers of broad category, Art Spiegelman and Francis Ford Coppola and Larry David, you know, people who create uh, th with language. But for the most part, those vignettes are about writers. There are a lot of other people who I've interviewed who are melded into my experiences in the book, famous scientists and uh, politicians and uh, cultural figures and so forth. But the vignettes, as we call them, Stanford University Press is my publisher, and they began to call them vignettes, and that kind of stuck about writers follow the personal narrative. So you go from literature to life and literature to life and back and forth, and I kind of liked that movement. The, the difficulty was deciding where to place some of these vignettes, and I just sort of followed my intuition and my instincts and what I thought was appropriate in terms of the whole trajectory of the work and the structure of it, as you suggested, and it seemed to work. In fact, one of the, Brad Cava, who is a reviewer for the San Jose Mercury News, said, and I hadn't even thought of this, he said, it's it's like you're you're being on the radio and then you're going to a break, and then you're being on the radio again and going to a break. And I, you know, I worked in commercial radio, and I write about that whole experience as well as public radio, because I think it was a valuable exercise for me to try to present both sides of the moon, as I refer to those two sides of radio that are so different and talk about my own personal experience in both of them. And he was talking about, for example, what the phenomenon in commercial radio of doing a program, having content, and then going to a 
like a commercial break. This isn't quite a commercial break, but it's a break. <laughs> These, these interview breaks that, that you have, they're not transcriptions of interviews. No. A and I wonder if you, did you transcribe the interviews and then condense it down into the, these prose pieces? They're really beautifully written and orchestrated. Thank you. And no, I didn't do any transcription. In fact, what I did was I tried to work from memory and then I realized, you know, that I'm losing neurons by the day, and I thought I should go back and listen to the tapes, and I did. Uh, I felt that I needed to hear again what these authors had to say so that it could percolate in my mind and maybe create something for me. And what I tried to get was a, was a picture of each of these writers, was to represent a kind of portrait or a snapshot of their lives, their work, my encounter with them, whatever really seemed impressionistically appropriate. You talk about your beginnings as a writer when you first became an interviewer. One of the things that interests me about a lot of the interviews you talk about in here is there's two very different styles of interviews. There's a style that we're doing right now, two guys sitting in a little room or two people sitting in a little room. And there's an interview where two people are sitting in front of a big audience. And could you talk about the difference for you between those styles of interviews? Well, I think stylistically, my, my, the, the way I interview is pretty similar. I'm the sort of interviewer who likes to ask questions, follow my curiosity, like an improvisational jazz musician, I think somewhat romantically, you know, make things up as I go along and respond and be a good listener and follow my curiosity, not necessarily have any prescribed map or blueprint, but also to, since I'm an educator by nature and have been most of my adult life, to bring myself in and to disseminate information and knowledge along with what's coming out of the person who is the interviewee. What I can tell you about being on stage, though, which I've done, in fact, <laughs> just recently it was the other way around. Isabel Allende interviewed me recently over at Herb's Theater on the stage. I, my joke was it was a sold-out house because they thought I was interviewing her, but it's a different sense because of the audience. When you're, like you say, two guys in a room or just inside of a, of a sound booth in a radio s studio, it's a whole different experience because you don't know, except maybe from an engineer or a producer who are sitting on the other side of the glass booth, as is the case with me every day, uh, what kind of reaction you're getting from the listeners. And one of the kind of pleasant things about going out and meeting the public and, and signing books and all of that is getting feedback that has to do with the work I've done on the air. When you're in front of a classroom or you're on a stage, you're getting instant feedback. You can hear the audience. You can sense the audience. You're almost like an actor or a performer. At least that's been my experience of it. And you intuit what works and what doesn't work, and you feel almost as if you're building up not only a rapport with the person you're interviewing, but also with the audience. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the Bay Area radio, because you've been through, uh, what, uh, almost 30 years, more than 30 years uh, of Bay Area. Alas. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know when you say talk about it. Uh, my own experience follows a certain kind of arc. I started off in radio at a very small station in Marin County, and Marin County was known at the time as a hotbed of hedonism, and there was an NBC special called I Want It All Now that profiled Marin County as a place where... There was a lot of uh, hot tubbing and peacock feathers and that sort of thing. And so uh, I, I had this notion that I was going to show the other side of Marin County, and I called this program, to my embarrassment, Beyond the Hot Tub. And it was a very small little radio station, but there were a lot of 
famous people in Marin at the time. I interviewed Jerry Garcia. I interviewed Grace Slick. I interviewed you know rock people who were in in the rock and roll world because many of them lived in Marin, but also people who were doing really good work in terms of being stewards of the environment, being dedicated to public health, uh, being doing hospice work, all of those kinds of things. And so I began to take on a real important sense of public service. And I was discovered by KGO, which is a big 50,000-watt station and part of ABC and one of the most successful stations in the country, if not the most successful station in the country, long been dominant in the ratings for decades. And I, I began to do a show, a weekly show there, and that led to a nightly show. And I had a lot of ambivalence about doing commercial radio. It didn't feel like the right place for me, whereas public radio has felt for the last almost 15 years like the right place for me. And I think the feeling was mutual because as things were developing, at least at KGO, there was a desire to be more tabloid, be more sensational, bring in younger demographics. There was a tremendous apprehension that they were going to lose the young demographics, or not gain them, I should say, and they wanted to gain them because they're big purchasers. So they had ideas of what would appeal to younger demographics, and it was mostly a lot of junky stuff. And so we parted ways, and I found myself in, after a few months of just not being in radio and missing it in the fortunate position of being able to try out for KQED, which is also a very successful station, but a public radio station, and uh, in fact has more listeners than any local public radio station in the country. It's San Francisco's the third biggest market, but KQED, both television and radio, uh, happen to have more listeners and viewers than any other public broadcasting station, radio, or television. And so I had an opportunity to speak to uh, a better and more informed audience, a higher level audience, a more educated audience, which I welcomed and still welcome. It's not to say that the people who listened to me at KGO were uninformed and stupid because they weren't. A lot of the people in management thought they were yahoos, but I didn't. I've always believed in, in trying to bring the discourse up as much as possible. And when I was uh, at KQED, I discovered that I was changing things from what had been a kind of local, politically oriented program about local politics to expand to state, nation, and international and cultural issues. And soon I found myself in the strange position of having uh, bested in ratings my former commercial station that had been employed me, at least according to Arbitron. So you know, that's, that's pretty good kind of vindication and revenge may be too strong a word, but it certainly felt good. One thing that's really clear from your memoir is that it's always been important for you to to make a difference. Why? Well, that's a very uh, poignant existential question. I'm not sure why. I think that maybe it has to do with growing up in the 60s and having that ethos that had to do with social consciousness and wanting to change the world and do all those things that we in the 60s believe somehow and we, we, those of us who were part of the, mo the movement as we called it uh, protesting Vietnam and protesting for civil rights we began to believe in these kinds of ideals and I think that you know that certainly affected me and was a major life-changing uh, aspect I also I write about in the book uh, about being galvanized by a Nobel laureate novelist Sal Bellow whom you alluded to when you mentioned Augie March, the author of Augie March, because Bellow, I wouldn't say obsessed, 
that's perhaps too strong a word, but Bella was very taken with, very smitten with the idea of how should a good man live. And I began to be taken with that same idea. And it's certainly in some ways more compatible with being an educator and, and being devoted to public service and, and serving in public radio to feel that you're doing good. But there are many other ways of doing good and many other ways in life that challenge you, it seems to me, to do good. And even at this age, I'm still a work in progress. And as a work in progress, I'd like you to talk about the progress over the years of your political views. You started out as part of the movement and ended up uh, strongly in support of the war in Afghanistan, and that's uh, that's a bit of a journey. Well, it was, and it was a difficult one. And uh, you know, there were there were certainly many people who were mad at me for the support of the war in Afghanistan. I, I was appalled at the idea of bombing, but as I write about in the book, I didn't know after 9-11, I was with about 85% of the American people uh, who felt that military action was appropriate, and yet I did a program for National Public Radio where I wanted only peace advocates on, and I wanted to hear what they had to say, because frankly, I wanted to be convinced that there was something other than a military action, a police action, or bombing with love and books and food or whatever it was, you know, convinced me is really kind of what my attitude was. And NPR didn't want that. NPR wanted more equity. Uh, they wanted some people from the Bush administration, in fact. And we fought them on that. And we, to our credit and to theirs, perhaps, because they knuckled under, we, we won. And we did that peace show. But I, I say in the book that as I got older, I was less ideological. And I felt maybe more conservative socially in some other ways, not necessarily politically, but socially because I had more to conserve. I mean, I, I moved up from a kind of blue-collar background into middle-class bourgeoisie, whatever you want to call it, and I write about this, and I didn't feel that it was selling out. I felt it was, in fact, well, realizing perhaps what I had been inculcated to realize since childhood, which was that you want to do better for yourself and for your children and for your community and all of those kinds of things, and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to... Um, you know, uh, live in a um, in a hovel, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a sellout if you are a professor or if you work in talk radio or do things that aren't really all that remunerative and certainly don't speak about avaricious capitalism <laughs> or anything like that. But I I, I did uh, certainly change some of my attitudes and some of my political beliefs, and I write about that as well, because I began to see things more in grays. I mean, I, I write about, for example, being pro-choice, where abortion is concerned, but also feeling tremendous sympathy for young men whom I talked to on the air who had uh, conceived children and felt that they had no power, no ability to do anything about the abortions taking place. And I also began to understand how people who believed that fetal life was life, really believed that fetal life was life and accepted it and, and saw these homunculuses or embryonic creatures as being uh, human in every way. And uh, so seeing grays, which is something probably that comes from my literary background, was what led me to be at least more open-minded and more aware that things were not quite as black and white as I had seen when I was a young man. It seemed more black and white because to some extent it was more black and white. Uh, the war was wrong and what made it different probably from Iraq and far as the protest movement was we could have been drafted at that time. Young men and young women are not in danger of being conscripted anymore. And we saw the civil rights and social justice movements 
in the clear light of day as being necessary and being of paramount importance. They were really moral issues that one could get behind and one could see uh, with absolute lucidity, at least so it appeared at the time, and it even appears to a great extent now. Your book has a really poignant ending, and it ties back to the beginning, because I, if I'm not mistaken, the very first interview that you quote in the book, or talk about in the book, is Joyce Carol Oates. And she's one of the last people you mentioned interviewing before you talk about the death of your father. Actually, Joyce Carol Oates is one of the first, you're right, I mean, I saw a, a connection with her. We were both academics, both intellectuals, both ran with wild kids when we were younger, both kind of proletarian backgrounds. She's the first vignette in the vignettes that follow. Um, I brought her back into the text before my mother's death, actually. Mm -hmm. What I brought back at the end of the book when I encountered my father's death was the figure of Gore Vidal, um, but just in, in a kind of passing in reference to, <laughs> so there was symmetry to it. I mean, you caught that, but I just want to get all the players oh. correct here. Be, uh, as if, you know, if people are going to read it and necessarily be all that mindful of these kinds of things, but the intent was to uh, show a kind of affinity later on with Oates because she was trying to remember her parents when they were younger and they were very old and infirm and we shared that and then you know I talked about her response to her mother's death and my response to mine and later on in the book uh, I end the book on my sort of the precipice of my father's death and right before my father's death and the recognition of or the remembrance of striving for this literary identity, interviewing Gore Vidal and the mention of Delmore Schwartz, because the line came back to me from Schwartz's poetry, one of his poems called Feroda, where he says, um, there is only the, um, he's talking about really the fleetingness and the ephemerality of life, and he says, uh, what is there besides the photograph and the memory? And I thought to myself, well, at one time that had resonance for me, but now as I'm trying to leave maybe a track or two in the sand and getting um, a bit long in the tooth, I can say that um, that seems like something that a, a young man would be drawn to as opposed to what we really perhaps can sanctify and what really matters to us in life. We've been speaking with Michael Krasny. His new book is called Off Mike. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.